Want to create memories with your family? Do you have a desire to bring your family closer together? Are vacations lacking that special something you want your family to have? Tropic of Candy Corn is your resource for smarter, sweeter family travel. Learn from other families, be inspired, and encourage others with your weekend getaway and vacation ideas. Tropic of Candy Corn. This isn't a travel sales site. It's something new and different. A community to help bring your family closer through travel. Join us today at www.tropicofcandycorn.com. It's free and it's fun. Mormon Discussion Podcast is about helping Latter-day Saints like you lead with faith while tackling deeper, complex issues within Mormonism. All financial support goes directly towards keeping the podcast alive and supporting listeners like you. To support the podcast, please consider becoming a premium subscriber at mormondiscussionpodcast.org. Again, that's mormondiscussionpodcast, all one word, dot org. You can do this for as little as $1.50 a month or $12 a year. And this will also reward you by letting you listen to premium episodes like this one months before the general public has access. Thanks for listening. And now, on to what you've been waiting to hear. Kevin Klusterman, welcome to the podcast. How are you today? I am doing uh, fantastic, Bill. I, uh, I'm happy to finally uh, get real with you. Do people uh, ever joke around about that on your podcast, you know, with your last name, getting real yeah. with Bill Real, as, or am I the first so far? No, no, you're not the first. Uh, Steve Densley, when I was interviewed for Fair Mormon, uh, named the episode The Real Story, and I get uh, I get that uh, kind of verbiage used often. People always want to pick on my last name. I often think that if I get out of the flooring business, I'll end up opening up a uh, a tackle store or a uh, fish bait store and call it Rods and Reels. Nice, so, nice. Yeah, you know, you got you to use that stuff when you have it. But I'm uh, I'm grateful to have you on today, and and I want to give a little bit of a story to my listeners to to kind of start us off. I, I was made aware of you about two years ago, but uh, we got a chance, you and I, to meet uh, last year. You and I both spoke at the Sunstone uh, Conference in Kirtland, Ohio, and you and I and my wife and a friend of ours all had lunch together before that. And I just wanted to say, Kevin, how much I appreciated getting to know you and, and just think of you as, as one of those out there in Mormonism that I look up highly to. Thanks. Thanks, Bill. I, I love the time that we spent in Kirtland together, and it was really, really one of the highest honors I've had um, being able to speak in the Kirtland Temple and, uh, you know, having that opportunity with you uh, and also yeah. hearing your your talk uh, in, in the Kirtland Temple. And it was just a, a great experience to meet your wife. And um, yeah, we had a good time there. That was good. Yeah, I appreciate that. I, I want to tell a little bit of a funny story with that. And I, you're welcome to put your two cents in, but they were looking for another keynote speaker. And so I reached out to Carl Ricks Anderson, who's known as Mr. Kirtland. He wrote uh, a book about Joseph Smith's time in Kirtland. He is kind of the head of the seminary department and was a, I think is still a patriarch in the Kirtland area. And, and just one of those guys that just knows a bunch. His brother, uh, Richard Anderson, is an expert on the Book of Mormon Witnesses. And, and I think maybe even still today is a professor over at BYU. And Carl took 
uh, me up on on my invitation to to be the concluding speaker at the conference that you and I spoke at. And he's a very, you know, he's a very, uh, I guess, I don't want to say fundamental in the sense of like polygamy and things like that, but just fundamental in the sense that he's very uh, well grounded in Mormonism and very much in uh, in the church. Uh, kind of a pillar of strength in our area, and it was kind of interesting. I don't know what your thoughts were, but but in the opening closing prayer of the, of that conference, I remember distinctly the people who were praying uh, using both Heavenly Mother and Heavenly Father in those prayers. And I, after the prayer was over, I kept looking over to Carl just to see if that caught him off guard. It it surprised me a little bit, but uh, but I thought that was kind of a a neat facet of that conference. Yeah, yeah, I was um, actually a little surprised to to hear that. And, um, it was a pleasant surprise for me. Um, but yeah, that, that was, that was interesting. And Carl, Carl did, uh, did a great job there too. Um, I think he's, he's a really, um, you know, just a brilliant, uh, person and, and, um, really liked uh, getting a chance to meet him. But yeah, those prayers were, were very, very powerful and, um, did invoke our mother in heaven. So, um yeah that was that was a unique uh unique conference definitely <laughs> yeah no i agree but carl rolled with the punches there and i think he uh if if it did catch him off guard it certainly didn't show on his face and and like you i i appreciated uh, that acknowledgement. I think often in our faith, we know there's a heavenly mother, but it's almost like, hey, we can't really talk about her or say anything. And and I often wonder if if there's a lot more that we could say that we that we think we can't. Kind of like with the temple, we often don't say anything about the temple because we've promised not to say certain things, and we're too afraid to get anywhere close to the line. And I wonder if in some ways that the subject of both of our heavenly parents might be a little more open than we as Mormons are comfortable with. Yeah, I think, you know, I think there's a lot of members of the church who are hungering for um, uh, that aspect of divinity. And um, I, I think I think we're ready for that. I you know, but but you're probably right. There's just been this cultural taboo, um, you know, and a lot of my feminist friends would probably, you know, talk about, uh, you know, patriarchy and how that creates barriers to um to maybe uh talking about um heavenly mother or um you know uh discussing her or you know there's kind of that cultural uh probably myth that you know heavenly father is so protective of heavenly mother that you know he he won't allow us to really talk about her or you know know her name you know in order to uh uh, protect her uh, fragile uh, <laughs> fragileness. <laughs> I don't know if that sounds right. sounds uh, correct or not. I don't know if you've heard those those ideas, but uh, um, I don't buy it. You know, I I just don't I don't buy it. I think uh, she's probably a, a pretty strong individual and can handle us uh, talking and discussing her. Yeah, you know, my wife often says, you know, it's a good thing. That, that she doesn't get a chance to serve as a bishop in the church because she would just tell people how it is. And I often picture our Heavenly Mother uh, being somewhat along those same lines, being being strong enough uh, in her personality to to love us to pieces, but to set us straight when we're not doing the right thing, just as my mother did. Yeah, yeah, that's kind of kind of how I see her, you know. And um, when when I uh, 
you know, I've had some interactions with Carolyn Pearson. I'm not sure if if, yeah, if you know who she is or I do. Um, yep. But yeah, she she really. When I think about Heavenly Mother, I often think of Carolyn Pearson. That's kind of my <laughs> my uh, uh, touchstone for uh, for her, and um, have had some great conversations with her. So. I love that. I, I know I started right off here in the interview kind of throwing uh, throwing you right in the fire, but let's back off and give you a few softballs. Uh, Kevin Klusterman is, is one of these individuals I consider to be famous within Mormonism, but famous for all the right reasons. And so, Kevin, maybe for the one or two listeners who are listening to this podcast that, that say, who in the heck is Kevin Klusterman? Why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, your background, and uh, and then we'll jump into to kind of getting a better feel for you. Okay. Well, um, I was born in the church. I uh, was born and raised in the other tip of the Book of Mormon belt. So if the Book of Mormon belt kind of starts in, uh, you know, that Southern California, Arizona area, and then goes up through uh, Utah and the Intermountain West, I'm I'm at the, the end of the Book of Mormon belt, which is in Alberta, Canada. And so I'm born and raised in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. And uh, my mother is the descendant of uh, Mormon pioneer stock, so her main name is Levitt, and uh, uh, that was always something that she was uh, very, very proud of. And uh, so my ancestors on my mom's side uh, joined the church around the Kirtland era and uh, went out to Illinois uh, and uh, around Nauvoo and um, then made the trek west. Uh, with Brigham Young and settled in Utah. And then when John Taylor became president of the church, he um, asked uh, my grandfather's great-grandfather to uh, go with uh, one of the stake presidents in Cache Valley uh, and go and colonize uh, southern uh, Canada, southern Alberta uh, specifically. And um, so that's that's where my mom's side comes from, and that's how we ended up in Alberta. And on my dad's side, he uh, he is an immigrant, and he is originally from the Netherlands or Holland. And he his mother joined the church after World War II when the church came in to help uh, with European Reconstruction and uh, sent you know massive amounts of Food and clothing, uh, not only to the saints in Europe, but you know, to people who even weren't members of the church. And uh, as a result of that, uh, my grandmother over there uh, joined the church, and that's how my uh, father was baptized. And then he emigrated over to Canada and served his mission in Canada. And that's how he met my mom, and uh, they got married in the Cardston, Alberta Temple. And then they had me, so that's kind of kind of my my parents' uh, story there, my background story. Gotcha. Tell us a little bit, Kevin, because I thought this was interesting. When I had lunch with you in Kirtland, uh, tell us what you do for a living. I am a, a, a mental health therapist. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist, but I work mostly in uh, the mental health field. I am a therapist at at a um, a hospital. Uh, in Illinois, uh, we moved to uh, Illinois after uh, after getting my degree at uh, BYU, 
And um, so, yeah, I'm I'm in the mental health field and work in an outpatient mental health setting. Has has that been kind of eye opening for you? I mean, I, I think of that kind of line of work and all the different kinds of people you're going to run into, the different kind of issues that people are having, and in perhaps just running into things that are completely outside the scope of what you run into in your own your own life with your own family and, and friends. Has that been kind of a, an awakening experience? Oh, yeah. You know, I, I think, and you would understand this too, you know, when you live outside that Book of Mormon belt um, and you're interacting with primarily people who are not members of the church and then also just in my profession, um, both working with members of the church and um, people who are not members of the church, it, it does give you, um, I think, uh, a different perspective than uh, probably somebody who is completely surrounded by, you know, members of the church. And for me, that has really been um, a part of, you know, why I have, you know, taken uh, the stand that I've taken is because, you know, I work with, uh, you know, a lot of individuals who are uh, lesbian, uh, gay, bisexual, or transgender, and um, many of them are are struggling with mental health issues, and those mental health issues can be directly connected and tied to the rejection and the discrimination that they face uh, in their families and in their communities. And as a result of being rejected and um, discriminated against, oftentimes they are more vulnerable to depression and substance abuse. Uh, and the research uh, really started to come out in the last few years and is, is really unassailable that the cause of that is, um, is, is uh, rejection by and large. The risks are much higher for those individuals when they face family rejection and rejection in their communities. Yeah, and I'm sure we're going to hit on this here shortly, but as you're kind of pointing out, the more that we're aware of people who are different than us, who have different walks of life, perhaps different ethnicities or cultures or races, whatever those things are, the more that we kind of get outside of our comfort zone and get to know other people the more it can open up our eyes and help us to empathize and sympathize with, with those different walks of life. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's the case. And it's so easy for all of us, you know, it doesn't matter if you're a member of the church or not, for us to really be in our own kind of bubble, in our own kind of zone. And in some ways, I think that's the message of the Savior is uh, to really get outside of our bubble, you know, that it's not enough just to sit down and have dinner with your friends and your family, but he calls us to connect with other people who are, you know, maybe outside of our uh, comfort zone and who may be different from us or people who maybe we really um, uh, maybe have some preconceived notions about or prejudices against. And I think he calls us to try to see things differently and part of that is is getting outside of that comfort zone so the the gospel message really is is definitely a huge huge part of of where i am today and what's helped me to be able to get to that that point yeah i appreciate you saying that i i want to talk for a moment i want to kind of set up our discussion by having you start off by telling us about your church service and and I, i'm not a big fan of 
somebody just listing, well, I served in this calling and I served in that calling, therefore I'm an, you know, an expert in the church. Cause I don't, I don't think that's the case, but I think it's important to help set up our discussion, uh, for this interview. If you might share with us some of the callings that you've held in the church, uh, maybe starting, you know, with, with ones that you think are worth mentioning that you, that were important to you. Uh, not necessarily what others perceive, but uh, ones that you grew from and just kind of maybe start us in the past and work us up to to somewhere near the present. Sure. Yeah. So I've served as a gospel doctrine teacher so that I really like that uh, calling a lot. That was that was a good calling. And um, for four years, I served as an early morning seminary teacher. Ooh. So that was a that was a huge, huge um, commitment and um, took a lot of time and a lot of energy, but really was one of the best experiences that I've had and uh, was really a great blessing. I'm not saying that I, I necessarily want to do it again, but um, it was it was wonderful and you know just being able to uh, teach those youth and to be with them in the morning in in a gospel environment um it, it really was one of the the coolest experiences that awesome. i've had um so i did that and then um uh let's see uh counselor uh in a branch presidency for a young single adult uh branch uh high council and and then uh bishop uh you know, and then after I was released, uh, teaching Sunday school. So cool. And I'll tell you, I served as an early morning seminary teacher as well. And, and I also served as a bishop like you. And, and I would take bishop any day over seminary teacher. That, that was one hard calling. And I, I look at, we have two seminary teachers in our, our ward here in Sandusky, Ohio. And I just admire them to pieces for how dedicated they are. I only lasted one year, one year. Of, of doing it. And they said, okay, we learned our lesson. That's not going to work with brother real. So we're going to have to have to release him and get somebody in there. That's actually going to be good at this. And, and so I only lasted a year. And the fact that you lasted four years in that says a lot about uh, your dedication to the gospel and, and to those youth and, and what they needed to be able to, to get through the day and what you gave them to do that. So, so just from my perspective, thank you for, for that kind of service. I just always consider a seminary teacher to be one of the most admirable and uh, one of those callings that just takes a lot out of you. And, and so thank you for that. Thanks, Bill. I uh, want to hit on, I mean, you served as bishop. How long did you serve as bishop for, Kevin? I served as bishop of my ward for four years and four months. Okay. And I served for four years, eight months. And, and hopefully most people understand a, a bishop serves somewhere in that maybe four to six year range. Uh, that's what most uh, stake presidencies and things have said to me over the years as I've, I've been, you know, told or asked how long a bishop serves for. Uh, so four years, four months. Um, what did you learn from that calling? I mean, how did being a bishop, you know, what kind of things did that help you to grow in or what kind of things did you learn from that? Probably the, one of the main takeaways that I, I, you know, I, 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 I really was just very, blessed and uh it was just a great opportunity to serve as bishop and um you know overwhelming at the same time but you know one of the things that i really learned as you look out over the congregation you recognize that every single person and every single family there there's no perfect mormon you know sometimes we look at uh certain families or certain people as super mormons or you know we kind of 
put them on a pedestal or whatever, but every single individual and every single family is struggling with, uh, you know, just different things. And so as a bishop, you just, you just learn, you know, you're, you're open and there to help, um, lift the burdens of every individual or family in the ward. And you, you're in that position, uh, you know, it's 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 really an honor and again overwhelming at the same time to be trusted with you know those very sometimes very private burdens and struggles that members of your ward are going through, and they're coming to you for support and counsel. And even though I'm in the counseling profession, you know, I still think I I had this idea that you know certain people you know, we're doing fine, doing great, you know, they're, they don't really have any problems. And I really should have known as a counselor that we all kind of struggle in different ways. And I should, should have known really through the gospel, through, you know, the atonement and, you know, things like that, that, you know, we all are in need of help and support and assistance. And, you know, we can't do it uh, alone. And um, so that's probably one of the most powerful things that I learned as bishop is, you know, that we we're all struggling. <laughs> yeah, I agree. I, I asked that question. I was thinking what would my own answer be? And it's the same idea that, that all of us, including myself, that we're all a little more fragile than I thought we were. And that the way in which others interact with us, whether they encourage us or whether they pull us down has just a, a much bigger effect than, than I thought. I look, you know, as you're talking, I'm thinking about all the members in my ward and, and realizing, as you pointed out, that everyone has some weakness, everyone has some shortcoming, and as a bishop of a ward, you you become intimately aware of the flaws of others and of your own flaws to the extent where the only word I can come up with is compassion. You have compassion for yourself and compassion for others, and realize how tough this journey is. Yeah, I hope I hope most bishops are able to to access that. I certainly did. And, you know, I, I was known before probably as a fairly, hopefully fairly compassionate person, but I think, I think being a bishop for me and, you know, probably the same for you, uh, really gave me a double portion of it. Uh, and, and I also think that I learned a little bit more compassion for myself too, which, which is, uh, you know, also what a lot of us need. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. So having served as a bishop, you're, you're released, but I want to back up before your time as bishop is over. And, and just to be frank, and I, and I, I applauded it, but I, I want to just recognize that you got yourself kind of into some hot water. Uh, and I want to maybe go back even before this. And so you can kind of lead us up to this whole, whole experience, but maybe in terms of LGBT issues, maybe run us through how you became aware of those issues when they started to kind of prick your heart and and caused you to kind of think about the way in which you handled it and what you could do to help others and and then where you took that leading up to what I'm speaking of that got you into some hot water. Great, yeah. And I'm actually going to give you a little bit of a scoop. I'm going to, uh, for your podcast, I'm going to give you some news that I really haven't talked about in a in a, you know, any of my articles that I've posted or any of my talks, I'm going to give you a little piece because there's, there's a lot of pieces to how I came to where I am, but I'm going to give you a piece that I haven't really talked about with, with, um, publicly before. 
But um, yeah, so, uh, you know, I grew up in a very conservative uh, family. You know, I myself, very conservative uh, politically and probably uh, theologically as well. And so for me, uh, you know, gay folks and feminists, they were kind of adversaries. They were on the wrong side of political issues. And uh, I sort of, you know, I wouldn't say that I ever, I wasn't so far conservative or traditional that I was angry or rejecting or hateful. But, you know, I probably didn't listen. I probably had, you know, barriers that just kept me from um, being able to access empathy or listening to what uh, folks like that, you know, were were trying to say, um, especially outside of the church, you know. Um, so I just kind of tuned tuned that stuff out. I remember uh, 2008 with the Proposition 8. I didn't think too much of it. It was a California issue. And I just thought, well, you know, I support, you know, civil unions or whatever, but, you know, marriage is, is, is marriage and can, you know, people can define it, uh, you know, the way they, uh, the, the way they want it. If they vote that it should be defined as a man and a woman, then that's the way it should be. So I just, I just kind of tuned all that stuff out. But at some point I began to, um, work with some individuals, uh, on a professional basis, I began to see, you know, some uh, LGBT people in my practice. And at first, I would say that their symptoms were just purely, you know, mental health related, um, and that it wasn't really connected to, you know, uh, rejection or what they were going through. That that didn't enter my mind. And to be honest with you, there wasn't much research on it. But I began to kind of get the sense that I was missing uh, a big part of the picture. I also started um, going on the Affirmation uh, website, and I'm not sure if you or your listeners are familiar with Affirmation, but it's um, it's a it's a group that supports LGBT Mormons who are open about their orientation or their gender identity. And I remember going on uh, their website and going to the memorial area and looking at all the names of LGBT individuals who had taken their lives, who had uh, committed suicide. And I think that was something that really, uh, really pricked my heart and began me uh, on the road to searching and, and really saying, I don't think I, I know the whole picture here. And as a mental health professional, you know, there's something wrong if, if there's a lot of these individuals who are, you know, taking their own lives. And I, I just, I started questioning what I knew about um, people who were gay and it wasn't, it wasn't very much. So I, I, I began to admit to myself that I needed to learn a little bit more. Also during that time, uh, I have a sister-in-law who is Jewish, and she, her name is Ann Immig, and she, she's the creator of um, a show that's um, national across the country called Listen to Your Mother. So if you're, if you're around Mother's Day and you, you see something called Listen to Your Mother, she's a creator of that, and she's just an awesome, impressive individual, and she's, and she's Jewish. 
And I, I remember a family member sending an email, a conservative family member, sending an email to uh, myself and the family and her and, you know, a bunch of other people on this email list. And uh, it was this article that was written that was very laudatory and praising of Jewish people. And at the same time, it was extremely negative and very prejudiced and bigoted towards Muslims. And, you know, I don't really always pay attention to emails from from this person in our family because they're very politically extreme. Right. But my my uh, sister-in-law, who's Jewish, uh, emailed everybody. She replied to all on that email list. And she said, this article is wrong. This is hate speech. This is the kind of speech that Hitler used um, to persecute the Jews and, and led to the Holocaust. And, and, and she said she wanted to reply to all because, you know, she, she really felt strongly that this needed to be condemned. And she probably offended a few family members, but she, you know, she noticed that my daughter, uh, was on that email list and she did not want my daughter to think that that kind of language or that kind of speech was acceptable and was okay and that it wasn't right to uh, pit one group against another and so she said as you know the only jewish member of this uh, family i need to you know take a stand on this and that experience with her just completely penetrated me because I said to myself, this is a Jewish woman standing up for her Muslim neighbors. And I said, that is exactly what this world needs more of, people like her. And I, w- I was just so proud of her and just so um, just so impressed and and just i i think i realized you know there's i think there's a saying among jews uh where they say never again uh in reference to the to the holocaust and i realized that for her that wasn't just for her tribe that wasn't just for jews that was for all of humanity and so that experience which i which i haven't really talked about publicly you know just left me with a deep deep impression and it wasn't very long after that, in two, this happened in 2011, where there were three separate attacks in Utah, violent attacks uh, against gay men with using uh, gay slurs and homophobic uh, rants and, um, uh, you know, basically these hateful, violent attacks. And it happened to three separate individuals in three separate locations in Utah. And it was at that point that I said, I'm going to take a stand. So uh, after I decided to, to take that stand and um, say, hey, I can't be on the fence about this anymore. I, uh, this is a persecuted uh, minority, um, and I need to uh, move from being kind of on the fence or uh, indifferent about these issues to being publicly uh, an ally and, um, you know, supporting LGBT uh, rights. Um, that's that's how that happened. And it was a few months after that, it was probably, that was the summer. And then in November, I had found out about this conference called Circling the Wagons, which was for 
a conference for uh, LGBT Mormons, and uh, I decided to fly out there, and they gave me an opportunity to help conduct a few of the sessions, and then I was asked if I would speak at the interfaith um, service, and they had hoped to, you know, get, uh, you know, a general authority to speak or, uh, you know, member of the 70, um, but they weren't really able to get anybody, and I really felt you know, the, these were all LGBT Mormons, and I just felt like they they needed one one of our own, you know, because it was a Methodist pastor and an Episcopalian pastor who were speaking. And I just said, we've got to have an LDS person be able to, to speak, you know, at this interdenominational service. And... Um, and so I I got up and I and I spoke. I said yes. I hadn't planned on even attending that service. And um, I I spoke and um, I didn't use any notes. And um, you know I I basically spoke from my heart. And uh, you know I said that LGBT people, many of them, had been wounded in the house of their friends. Right. And. Um, you know, that that wasn't right. And, you know, I, I apologized and I said, I, you know, I'm sorry that this has happened. And I really um, was trying to have it uh, be an uplifting thing. And uh, I found out later that a reporter was there from the Salt Lake Tribune. And, um, you know, we were at a gathering later on uh, that day. And uh, somebody came up to me and said, well, goodbye. It's been nice knowing you. And he pulled out his his uh, smartphone and pointed to an article that had just been uh, just come out. Bishop accuses LDS Church of atrocities, <laughs> and I'm like, oh my gosh, is that what they really thought about my talk? You know, how did they how did they get that headline? And um, so it created this huge huge controversy and. Um, you know, the AP picked it up and then it just, it just went everywhere. And I'm sure the church office building, um, you know, got many, many phone calls, uh, as soon as that article ran in the Salt Lake Tribune. And, um, and so, uh, John DeLynn and, um, a few of his friends immediately, um, put out the video of my, my talk at the interdenominational service. Uh, and, um, you know, people were really able to see when they saw my talk and they saw the news article that it, it didn't really match up very well and that the news article was probably trying to oversell, you know, kind of what I was saying and create some controversy. And I'm sure it, you know, sold a lot of papers, but it was it was a pretty difficult situation uh, for me <laughs> and and awkward because it, it was a pretty extreme headline. Sure. Yeah, I, I'm sitting there and I'm thinking about because I, I was aware of the talk you gave. I'd listened to it. And I was, as I listened to you sharing your words there in that conference, I was pretty happy about it. I was, I was kind of applauding it and, and to hear sometimes how the media can pick up on things and take, you know, a few words out of a sentence or a sentence out of a paragraph or a paragraph out of a talk and say, this is what he's trying to say. I, I just, I struggle sometimes when, when others try to put words into another person or my own, my own mouth. And uh, unfortunately, you met that kind of face to face. And thank heavens for uh, Joanna Brooks because she she called me up and 
um, wanted to do an interview with me to clarify, uh, you know, what I had said. And so she, she put that blog article out on religion dispatches and, uh, I call her my, uh, feminist good Samaritan who rescued me from being robbed of context and being misquoted. Uh, so I was really thankful for her in uh, helping me to, you know, kind of clarify things and, and put things in the right context and perspective. She was wonderful. Right. Yeah. And I, I appreciate Joanna and her perspective and, and just as you're pointing out, grateful that, that she was willing to do that and, uh, and the help that that was. I want to, I want to run a few points by you and then I want to maybe talk about the reaction from that point forward. I, I wonder sometimes we look at different groups who make up a minority in the population. So, and strangely enough, the first one I would say is women, even though they're not a minority, right? They're 51% of, of the population in our country. And yet in some ways we're well aware that, that there's still this battle over equality and wanting to be treated as equal. And, and because they make up such a large chunk of the population, that issue in some ways is in our face. We, we have to deal with it. We have to talk about it. We need to, to have these kinds of conversations. But the smaller that group becomes, the easier it is sometimes to brush off. And so I'll, I'll use the race issue kind of next, which, you know, if we were to take blacks or Hispanics and talk about the percentage that they make up in our population, it's less. And so in some ways, the conversation may be a little further off to the side, but it becomes even bigger of a, 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 as far as the size of the divide when we begin looking at issues like the LGBT uh, community and issues that they're dealing with, and even taking a step further, uh, recently I saw a video about an LDS, uh, born a boy, transgendered, uh, ended up having, I think, surgery to become a, a female. And it's so easy in our culture and in the world at large to look at issues like that into, to, because there's such a small minority, to just kind of brush them off and come up with reasons why we don't have to deal with talking about it or looking at these issues and trying to figure out what's going on there. And, and unfortunately, you know, as you talk about becoming aware of LGBT issues, I think part of the, the problem is that maybe there's just not enough of us who are aware of somebody who, who's dealing with this, you know, face to face in their own life that, that we're never really forced to kind of reckon with it ourselves. Oh, I totally agree. You know, I, I think when, when you don't, and, and this happens over and over again, you, you'll hear people who say, I've now kind of switched my position on this issue because a family member came out, you know, or I have family members who uh, are gay or are transgender or bisexual. Um, and, you know, up until that time, it's just not, it's not an issue. And if it's not, you know, I, I think a lot of people are just very concrete in their lives. And if it's not something that affects them or or impacts them in some way, it's kind of like out of sight, out of mind, you know. And so that can happen with uh, issues of race. It can happen with issues of uh, gender equality in terms of not understanding how power and hierarchy can, um, you know, uh, impact people. So, um, and, and then certainly with LGBT issues, you know, that's, that's a small percentage of the population. You know, the research is that it's, it's somewhere around, 
uh, like five to seven percent. Other other researchers, you know, say it's maybe around ten percent. But it's it's a small it's a small minority, and so there's some families who who aren't impacted by this. And certainly, and this is really an incredible thing to me. Even after I came out publicly in support of LGBT individuals and uh, LGBT rights, uh, you know, I I still haven't had family members, close family members or even extended family members who have suddenly said, oh, I'm gay. Uh, it just hasn't happened in my family, uh, in my extended family. And it hasn't happened with, um, you know, really close friends of mine. You know, I've gained a lot of, of really close associations and friends uh, through uh, me wanting to take this stand and me wanting to reach out. But in my own circle, uh, you know, Prior to me taking this stand and then afterwards, it still hasn't really happened. You know, so I think what you're saying is is so true and so valid. And it's it's a cautionary uh, warning to each one of us, you know, regardless of what the issues are, whether, you know, it's a religious minority, you know, Mormons or any other religion or whatever, you know, when we are only looking at ourselves and our own friends and family or our own tribe or whatever, uh, we're vulnerable to uh, not seeing a clear picture of other people and other individuals. We're vulnerable to prejudice, and that can, that can negatively impact people. It can have real negative impact. Uh, impacts on people, and it certainly right. has for LGBT people. They uh, they are at risk out of all minority groups, whether religious minority groups or um, racial minority groups. Um, any minority group, they are at the highest risk for violence being committed against them simply because they're gay or lesbian or bisexual or transgender. Right, and, and again, that I think that really plays into the fact that it's such a small number or small percentage of, of the population that it just, it just makes it easy for us to kind of brush it off as this negative thing. If, if, you know, if half the people born in this country were gay, we would have dealt with this issue, you know, 40 years ago, a hundred years ago, maybe even further back. But because it's such a small group, it's something that we've kind of put off dealing with and, and not really understood why things happen. It's easy when half the population is male or female to say, hey, there's a reason why this occurs and to say, OK, you know, husband and wife, uh, get, you know, they get pregnant, they have a child and the child has to be one gender or the other. But when you realize that in these these situations where the percentage is so much lower, I think it just becomes kind of um, put off as really wanting to deal with why these things happen. And if if it's a natural, you know, occurrence in in our world, rather than trying to say that somebody's choosing to do something or somebody wants to be, you know, a sinner or somebody wants to be, uh, one who makes bad choices and, and does hurtful things to others. I just, I think sometimes we just take the easy way out and trying to understand why things are the way they are. Yes. And, and let me get a little bit political just for a second here. Um, and I believe that that is one of the most inspired aspects of uh, the country that we live in, the United States, and the Constitution. Uh, Madison in the uh, Federalist Papers talked about the tyranny of the majority, and they were concerned that if they just did 
a wholesale direct democracy rather than a representative republic, that there would be more of that tyranny of the majority. Uh, And they knew that minorities are very, very vulnerable to being crushed by majorities and kind of the passions and prejudices of the majority uh, of, of, of that time. And so, you know, I believe um, the, the, the Constitution and the, uh, the inspired way that this country was built was to hopefully try to, you know, slow that process down to make sure that, um, you know, human rights are respected. It hasn't always worked. Um, and, it, you know, sometimes it can take years to, to really get that course corrected. But, um, you know, Madison was at least one of the founders that was very concerned about this tyranny of the majority uh, because it is a very real situation. And certainly as Mormons, we also understand that, don't we? Right, right. It's in our history, too. We we become vulnerable in those situations, and I completely understand that. My my own personal views, I love how you're sharing this kind of awakening within yourself and how you came to, to see these issues as serious and personal to you. And, and maybe just to share with my listeners that, that my view started to change several years ago as I kind of went through my 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 faith transition, kind of realizing that maybe not everything was the way I thought it was. And that kind of forced me to sit down and take another look at everything to to kind of deconstruct my entire world and to put it back together and to start looking at issues like LGBT and, and women's issues and things like that and say, okay, let me, let me get off my soapbox for a minute. Let me take apart what I've been told and what I've kind of put together as my own belief system. And let's see if there's another way to see some of these things. And then I don't know if you're familiar with Wendy Montgomery. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yes. So I, I had Wendy on the podcast, um, I don't know, a month or so ago and, and hopefully I'm not sure how this will work out with the releases, Kevin, if you'll be released right after her or just before her, but, but at least so my listeners know that, that that interview took place before yours. And I heard Wendy in another interview that she did talking about her son and talking about him, you know, being gay, but outside of that, being worthy in the church in every possible way, that he was a, a worthy, uh, priesthood holder. And yet, and yet members of his ward were turning him away when the sacrament was passed to him, passed to them by him. And then they would flag some other priesthood holder down and get the sacrament from them. Or that he would be told or his parents would be told that he shouldn't be going on youth temple trips because he'd have to change in the locker room with the boys. I just, things like that just totally opened my eyes up and I said, you know, enough of this. We, it's one thing to have doctrine and to have policy, but it's another thing to be unchristlike towards others and, in simply having a doctrine or policy that states that certain behaviors are considered sin doesn't give us a free pass to treat people like crap. And unfortunately, I think for, for too long, and I don't mean this as a, as a, as a church created this problem. I just mean that culturally, we've sometimes given this kind of free umbrella over this type of behavior because we see ourselves as being righteous and somebody else who's sinning is being unrighteous and somehow that gives us a free pass to to say mean things or to do hurtful things to others and like you I just I think it has to end. Yeah, it it does. And and when Wendy had had told me what had happened to her son Jordan or you know I heard about it um I I you know and that was a little bit later on there was just a a number of really 
just interesting confluences. You know, you have the Montgomery family who, you know, uh, really went public with their story and has just done some incredible work and, you know, just has enormous courage and bravery. Uh, and then you have Mitch Maine, who uh, I don't know if you've had him on your podcast, but I have. He he's an incredible individual, too, uh, who was um, called uh, to be the executive secretary of his ward and, you know, not in spite of him being gay, but because he was gay right. by, by a very inspired uh, bishop. But yeah, when I heard when I heard Wendy's uh, story of, of Jordan, you know, and, and Jordan, you know, I mean, he was definitely worthy in every way. And, you know, he, he never even held hands with a with another boy, you know. Right. And he's just doing his his duty and passing the sacrament and he's getting rejected. He's getting despised by members of his own ward. And we can't afford to have anyone go through that. What that does to a vulnerable youth, um, I don't think people realize uh, what that does to um, a person, an an adult, you know, but uh, it would be hard enough for an adult. But for a vulnerable youth at that time, I mean, you're a bishop, you, you know how vulnerable youth are. Right. You know, you know what that age is like, and how how difficult and sensitive that time period is. I mean, I can't even imagine what that was like for him. And 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 uh, thank heavens that he had parents who were awake to this. Thank heavens that he had parents who advocated for him. Because if he didn't. Um, we know what 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 often happens in these situations. So uh, the Montgomery family, Jordan and and Wendy and Tom and and the whole family, uh, they are just incredible examples of of where we need to go. Um, we can't afford to have that happen. I'm with you. I'm with you. I uh, I want to kind of get back into to your story and, and maybe kind of to tie this in, you pointed out earlier about Christ being the example. And, and as you talk about those who are vulnerable, especially the young ones in the church, and I, I look at the Savior and how he acted, and I think you were hitting on this a little bit earlier, but but Christ always, you know, he, there's a certain way he treated those who thought that they were better than others. There's a certain way he treated those who thought that they were more righteous than others. And then there's a whole nother way he treated those who were vulnerable, who were weak, who were aware that they were stuck in a rut or falling short of what others' expectations of them were. And and I just appreciate you kind of hitting on that and and maybe how each of us should act. So So thinking about Christ and, and how he treated others and, and how he handled situations, it's kind of provoked me in, in kind of changing my own view on this issue. And, and so I'll share with you my view. And, and that's this. I, I support the church's doctrine. I support the church's policy. I in no way am, am demanding that the church need change those. I'm in no way saying that my, my perspective automatically trumps the church's perspective. I grant that, that that is not a freedom I have to do, that that's not something I, I feel I have a right to challenge. So I support the doctrine. I support the policy. I'm, I'm completely okay with it as it stands right now. Now, I will say this. If a year from now, 
the president of the church, President Monson, receives a revelation that says that, you know, hey, we've been wrong on this issue and we're going to approach it differently, then, then I would applaud that and I would be excited and I would be happy just as many were excited in that 1978 revelation. And so maybe that change comes, maybe it never comes. And, and I'm okay with supporting the church if or when, uh, that change ever does occur. And, and I feel, comfortable voicing that. I feel comfortable saying that. And I, I felt like up to this point that, that nobody's, you know, come to me and said, Hey, you know, you really can't say that. And, and yet I'm aware. And I I recognize that, you know, we're all different in the church and we all see things differently. We all have different perspectives and, and we all have different sides of the story. Me and my wife were just in, and I hope she doesn't mind me sharing this. We were in a pretty rough argument the other night and this event happened, this experience happened. We both saw the exact same facts as they happened right before us, and yet we both took two different conclusions or understandings of the way in which things went down. And I think that's just the human experience, that you and I can see the exact same event take place, and we take different things from it, and our perspective about what is going on in that situation are completely different. So I, I want to be f- just first and foremost acknowledge that it's when it comes to human beings, we're messy, we're complicated, it's just not simple. So as I think about the way in which I've approached this issue, I feel pretty comfortable having that viewpoint. I don't feel at all like I'm I'm being risky to anybody. I, I feel like the church has given me this freedom. In fact, I'll I'll use a quote from Elder Uchtdorf. This this might help out a little bit. Elder Uchtdorf, in his talk, The Four Titles, in I think it's title number two, Disciple of Jesus Christ, he says, But while the atonement is meant to help us all become more like Christ, it is not meant to make us all the same. Sometimes we confuse differences in personality with sin. We can even make the mistake of thinking that because someone is different from us, it must mean they are not pleasing to God. This line of thinking leads some to believe that the church wants to create every member from a single mold, that each one should look, feel, think, and behave like every other. This would contradict the genius of God, who created every man different from his brother, every son different from his father, even identical twins are not identical in their personalities and spiritual identities. And so I feel like the church gives us this freedom to be to be very different. But I also think that you and I would agree that somewhere along the way, there's a line. There's a line that we, we can't cross. And again, because each of us have different perspectives and see things differently and understand experiences, the exact same experience in different ways, the reaction is sometimes going to be different. And I wonder if maybe you would run us through... After this whole thing with the circle of the wagons and kind of going forward, uh, what's your experience has been and what's been the reaction to to those things that you've done and said? Yeah. So, um, uh, by the way, that was a wonderful quote, quote there from President Oktorf. Uh, what what incredible words. Um, so when I got back uh, from uh, the circle of the wagons conference, obviously my stake president wanted to have a talk with me. <laughs> um, and right. he, he realized uh, that the Salt Lake Tribune had uh, overreached with their uh, headline and had misquoted me. And they actually had to print a correction and they discussed it a little bit in the Deseret News. And um, I think the Deseret News kind of, uh, you know, needled them a little bit about, um, you know, misquoting and, you know, kind of overreaching. So, um, so he knew that, uh, uh, there was some, some controversy about the press coverage of what I had said. 
And, you know, he was really great with me. And he said, you know, we're not going to censure you. Um, you know, we, we don't want you doing any more interviews, uh, you know, while you're bishop, but uh, which, which I did not do. Um, and, and certainly I, you know, after all of the, the kind of crazy controversy and some other, uh, you know, kind of negative events, including, you know, um, somebody talking about blood atonement on a web page and putting out my home address and my work address and the name of my wife and my children. Yeah, that's um, scary. I, I thought it was wise counsel for me to kind of lay low. <laughs> so, um, so he was really great. And then um, it was probably, so that was in November of 2011 when I uh, gave the, gave the talk and was at circle the wagons, the first circle of the wagons. And then it was March of the next year. Uh, so that would be 2012 that um, he met with my wife and I and released me. And my wife asked, who's um, you know pretty direct person, um, asked him directly and said, "Is Kevin being released because of his Circle the Wagons talk?" And the stake president uh, firmly said, "No." He's not. And um, so uh, so I was released at four years and four, four months. And after that, uh, you know, I began to accelerate my advocacy. So, you know, one thing that I did was I recognized that for me, and this is for me, that I could not be an LGBT ally uh, fully without supporting uh, marriage equality. I, I realized that um, I can't deny rights and privileges that I take for myself and deny them to uh, another group because they're different than me and that all of us um, really deserve equality under the law and due process under the law. So I felt for me in becoming uh, an LGBT ally, I needed to um, support uh, marriage, civil marriage equality. And um, so that's what I did. And I, I uh, went down to Springfield and I lobbied um, with uh, some other people of other faiths who uh, believed in civil marriage equality and, um, you know, spoke with my state senator and, um, you know, promoted that uh, change uh, in uh, Illinois law. We live in Illinois. And um, uh, so I, I did work on that and did blog about that. And um, I, you know, I, I was also active on Facebook, too. So, you know, I was, uh, you know, promoting civil marriage equality and any uh, LGBT um, rights issues, whether it's for housing um, or employment uh, discrimination or, you know, whatever, whatever the case was. So, um, again, you know, I felt like like I... I could do these things. I wasn't, um, you know, kind of crying out for the church to change any doctrines. Um, I didn't talk about, you know, church policies or anything like that. I was really focused on the political arena and, um, you know, these, uh, what I believe are civil rights issues. And <clears throat> apparently, you know, during this time, uh, you know, I, I found out probably only a couple weeks ago. So this is kind of some more news for your podcast that I haven't really revealed yet, but uh, apparently there were members of my ward or the members of the stake who um, began to um, get
get offended or upset with what I was doing. And, um, you know, they spoke to my bishop and uh, uh, it was, I guess, March of this this past year. Yeah, March 2014 that I went to him to renew my temple recommend and he um, he denied me a temple recommend. Wow. I, uh, I want to come back to that and talk about kind of the effects of that and, and, and how that's impacted you. But I want to kind of hit this along the way. I mean, do you feel like in Mormonism, do you feel like there's a freedom? You know, that quote I read from Elder Uchtdorf, is there a freedom to, to be different? I mean, I feel that. I, I mean, I hope, I think you do as well. Is there that kind of flexibility there? I think it depends on where you live. Yeah, it can be hit I, and miss. I hate to say that, but it depends on your local leaders. It depends on where you live. And there are some areas in the church and some local leaders in the church who are very open and very accommodating and celebrate differences, you know, and diversity and differences of belief. And they um, um, appreciate those differences and recognize it as a strength in the church. And other uh, local leaders um, don't. And it's probably aligned all along a, a spectrum of, of uh, geography and different local leaders. Um, there's probably, you know, some, uh, you know, um, I, I hope this is fair to say, and maybe I'll want this edited out later, but I think it's fair to say that there are probably some general authorities who are more appreciative and open to diversity and differences, and then there are some who um, are more concerned about that. Um, so I think it just sort of depends. Yeah, it it is interesting. We can all kind of go into Mormonism and find what we're looking for. So if I want to talk about unity trumping diversity, there's a talk from Elder Faust, I think, maybe in the 90s, where he talks essentially about unity is way more important than diversity. And, and yet in this Elder Uchtdorf talk, he raves up and down about diversity. And while, while we certainly want to be unified in the gospel of Jesus Christ in every other way, we're kind of free to be diverse and our strength is in that diversity. And so I think you, you kind of hit on a major point, which is it is kind of hit and miss in the church. I, I realize that, but I, I often wonder at the actual core of our doctrine is this ability to ask questions, this ability to take different stances on different issues. You know, you hear about early church history where Brigham Young would stand up in the tabernacle and teach a point on the Adam-God doctrine and then sit down and then Orson Pratt would get up and say, Brigham Young's, you know, full of it and, and go ahead and, right, and, and go ahead and preach a whole other message. And then Brigham Young would get back up and, and say the exact same thing about Orson Pratt. And our, and I find lots of quotes. Hubie Brown talks about that as long as we're informed, we should, we should feel free to dissent. And when we think about certain doctrines in the church, whether we're talking evolution or age of the earth or, or tithing's 10% of what and, and all these issues, we as Mormons think there's this spelled out answer. But in reality, Mormonism really has a lot less answers to questions than we, we maybe thought it did. And I think in the midst of that, in the midst of there being a lot of unknowns, in the midst of much of our faith coming from the ability to ask questions, uh, the church newsroom and the first presidency just reiterated recently that our freedom to ask tough questions, that there's a certain tone and way we should do it, but that we should be allowed to ask questions. And I, I just think that you're right. It is hit and miss throughout the church. But I think at its core, 
Mormonism is really a, a flexible faith that that really allows us to to be different in so many ways. And and I see this issue that that's kind of been you know confronted with you as being one of those issues that we're allowed some some flexibility on. Um, any thoughts? Um, you know, I had hoped that and really saw it in in, in a similar way. And um, you know, I had met with my stake president. Uh, a few times, and he had talked to me about some of my blog posts and um, my stances, and he disagreed with them. Um, he, uh, you know, he didn't approve of them, but at the same time, he didn't pull he didn't pull my temple recommend either. And he, um, you know, he was very kind and very compassionate, and really allowed uh, room for for you know differences. And he was respectful, you know, and I think that's something that the church has said, too, um, is that, you know, there needs to be uh, civility. And, um, you know, I, I feel like he really treated me with civility and certainly I with him. And we just disagreed about this issue being a civil rights issue. And um, so uh, now. Over the past year, things have been a little bit different. The rhetoric has really heated up uh, on a number of, of levels, and I'm not sure right. exactly what's happening, but, uh, uh, you know, with Kate Kelly and then John DeLynn and, uh, uh, you know, some other people, and then me, with me being denied a temple recommend, um, it's I, yeah, I'm kind of concerned, you know, that uh, I don't know how much flexibility there is. Uh, so I guess we'll see. We'll see what happens. The you know the good news is is that after a few months and kind of things settling down, my bishop and I have opened up the communication lines again, which I've been really happy about. And um, I did decide to um, accept the calling. I'm teaching gospel doctrine. Uh, you know, and I, I decided to go ahead and do that as a good faith gesture to hopefully um, open the lines of communication up again. So I'm an optimist. <laughs> so I'm a very, you know, my per people who know me, my personality is that uh, things are always going to get better. It may be bumpy along the way, but the trajectory over the long term, um, things are getting better and things are going to get better. Uh, so I'm hopeful that that what you articulated so well will be the case in the church. Uh, but it appears that, you know, for the moment, at least in, you know, I'll just speak for myself, at least in my case, um, there's been some challenges to that because I haven't, you know, uh, for me, I haven't spoken and said any doctrines, uh, you know, should be changed or anything like that. Um, and I'm still being, you know, denied a temple recommend because, you know, because I promoted um, civil uh, same-sex marriage. Right. I just, it, it is intriguing, and I, I don't want to say a whole bunch here, but I'll, I'll share with you, in my neck of the woods, my bishop's been just my biggest advocate. He is, you know, if I go on the podcast and I talk about the fact that some of our doctrine from the 1940s is now disavowed theories and I talk about the repercussions of that, or if I do an episode about, you know, even though it was recently reiterated in uh, in a recent general conference that Christ was born on April 6th and I, I show why that's probably a faulty assumption and why that doesn't work. You know, I feel like 
no, I'm not, I'm not demeaning anybody. I'm not, uh, trying to belittle a leader in the church, but I also want to have conversations about serious issues and the repercussions of those issues. And, and in doing so, my bishop's just been a, a great support. I recently had a, a member of our ward who shared with our family that, that they thought that all resurrected beings would be light skinned. And, uh, and I kind of chuckled and I, I let the person kind of finish their talking to our family. And when they were done, we got out into the vehicle and I said, my kids looked at me first. They said, dad, do we have to believe that? And I said, no, you don't, you don't have to believe that. I said, I don't believe that. And, uh, and I shared with them some thoughts and then I got home and I, I sent this, this member an email just laying out, Hey, you know, I, I realize you have some points of view. I realize I have some points of view. I, I would guess that outside of the basic little tiny box of what I would call Mormonism, that your and I's viewpoints would differ drastically. And I said, that's okay. I said, it might be better if you just stick with the basics when you're, when you're speaking to the members of our home. And, uh, this person the next day went to our bishop's home and brought up the incident that had occurred the day before between me and him. And, uh, my bishop, after listening to him share the story, looked at him and said, you know, Bill's right. And, uh, so he was, you know, very supportive of me. And I, and I feel like the, our stake here has asked me on a couple of occasions to come in and to share with other leaders of the stake the issues of, say, faith crisis and to try and help people work through why some of us get hung up on historical issues or have these different viewpoints that seem that can seem kind of conflicting with others in the church. But in reality, once we dig down, maybe there is this flexibility to have these different points of view. And, and I'll even share, Kevin, that, that I've even had communication with, with general authorities and I won't be specific, but I've heard horror stories of general authorities sending these communications back to the stake leaders and saying, basically, look, so-and-so wrote me, you take care of it. But that's not been my experience. My experience has been, uh, love and empathy and understanding and encouragement. And, and one of these leaders I know is even aware of the podcast that I do and, uh, seems, seems like it doesn't bother this person a bit that they've encouraged me to, to continue exploring tough issues. And in the midst of that, I hear your story and, and I, I struggle with it because the last thing I want are, are people like you and those who are aware of you and I thinking that it's risky to be frank about tough issues and to ask tough questions while on one hand the church is saying go ahead ask them and on the other hand they're they're in a sense you know taking people's um privileges away because we're asking tough questions or because we support a, a, a side of a cause that's different than that other person holds it it's messy and i get it it's not an easy thing to jump in i'm i'm stammering here because i don't want your bishop to feel like i'm i'm condemning him i don't want him to think that at all i I know how hard it is to serve in that calling. And I remember serving as bishop and there were members of our ward who, who were critical of some of the decisions I was making. And, and that hurt my feelings and it, and it, it broke my heart in some ways. And so I understand the pain that kind of goes along with that. But at the same time, I, I just hope that as we go forward in the church, that we'll all become a little more comfortable with the guy next to us being a lot different than we are and taking stances, you know, it may surprise people when I say that I'm not really sure I believe in a global flood, that I'm, I'm okay if it's local. And it may surprise people when I say, you know, when I look at the fall and the creation, there's a whole bunch of that that I simply take as figurative. And people's jaws may drop, but that's the kind of Mormonism we're going to have to get comfortable with 
if if we're going to really live up to Elder Uchtdorf's words to allow people to not fit a mold? You know, and I, I uh, you know, I really just uh, love and agree with what, you know, what you said there. And I want to say that I, I love my bishop. I, I think he's a good man. I think, uh, um, you know, we, we obviously have different points of view and I know he's, um, doing what he thinks is right. And, you know, it's, it's, I was, I was pretty upset and it was hard, uh, at first. And I've come to a point where I'm in a little bit of a better space on it than I used to be. But it was shocking for me at first. I, I really, in some ways, was not prepared for it. But as you were, you know, just kind of saying what you were saying there, it, it reminds me that we have a fairly young religion. Um, and uh, I, what I kind of see right now, and I could be off and wrong in my perceptions, but we're kind of going through this, these growing pains, and it's almost this adolescent phase of development where we're, we're kind of in this protective mode of, you know, not wanting to um, bring up these difficult issues or these difficult questions or talk about them uh, because we really need to uh, protect ourselves and protect others in this kind of childlike situation. And then you know, there's the adult end of the spectrum where, hey, we're all grown-ups here. We can we can agree to disagree. We can talk about things. We can share perspectives without getting so you know sensitive uh, and protective. Uh, you know that we're willing to you know kind of interact with people in you know unchristlike ways. And I'm certainly not saying that that my bishop has has done that but you know with with the things that you're talking about you know how sensitive we can all get about these things and and certainly me at the top of the list so i hope we're able to kind of get through this phase of development and have a more mature um dialogue and and be able to have that kind of church because there's other religions and other churches who have been able to get to that point and i think there's times when we are there and there's times when we're not and it kind of goes up and down a little bit and but i believe we will get to that point fully uh i i think about um spencer clark who is the executive director of mormons for equality and uh, has done enormous work in advocacy for uh, uh, civil marriage equality. He's the executive director and has done, you know, probably much, much more advocacy and organization than I ever have. Um, and he is an ordinance worker in the Washington, D.C. temple. Yeah. So, um, so I think I see it in places, that flexibility and that ability to have differences. And then I see it in other ways where it's not there and it goes up and down. And I think that's just how it goes. That's how yeah. how religions and uh, organizations and churches uh, evolve to a more mature uh, level. And I think we're kind of in that mid to late adolescence, but I believe we will we will get there eventually. Yeah, and while while some of the 
the negative reactions to events around us are certainly kind of visible right now in, in a strong way. I think also the positive ones are there as well. When you look at LDS.org and the gospel topics, articles that they've been releasing, I mean, think about some of these. You know, to to have taught for a long, long time that that the Book of Mormon was translated one way and to now come out and say, hey, you know, we kind of really didn't pay close enough attention to the historical account. There's there's a whole other side of this this history that we haven't explored before, and and here it is. Or the uh, the recent Book of Abraham article, you know, to say for for decades and decades that we absolutely believe there's a direct connection between the papyri and the Book of Abraham, and now to say we're not so sure anymore. Every member is free to kind of think of this translation however they want because we're not really certain of exactly what the connection is. There, there's this admittance, Elder Uchtdorf saying that, you know, leaders have made mistakes and some of those mistakes may have violated principles and doctrines. That's a huge admittance. And, and I think if our eyes are open, there's just a lot of big things going on. And, and maybe as one example, kind of on the issue you're talking about, Don Bradley, who is a well-respected, well-known scholar, uh, in the LDS church, he, he some years ago left the church, uh, ended up having his name removed and became an atheist. Little by little, he worked himself back into a belief in God through some of the Eastern religions and then came back into Christianity and eventually was rebaptized into the Mormon church. Wow. Talk about know, a, like a full circle there. Right. Right. <laughs> and to know what it's like to be out and to come back. And, and recently I know on Facebook, he announced his support for uh marriages between civil marriages between LGBT individuals and and then you know Maxine Hanks who was one of the September 6 and her coming back and being rebaptized in fact I think Don Bradley's the one who baptized her you know you hear this kind of stuff going on and and like you say I think it's important to notice that Mormonism is growing up that it is it's taking itself out of that siege mentality it had out in Utah. You know, we're persecuted in every area we were at. So we're, we're persecuted out of Palmyra. We're persecuted out of, out of, uh, Kirtland and, and out of Nauvoo. And, and we set up stakes in, in Salt Lake City and essentially, you know, figuratively build a big wall around us and ask everybody who joins to come in. And if you're not a member, stay out. And that mentality went for a long time. But, but I think that that's no longer the majority. I think it's now more of a welcoming, and uh, we just have some growing pains to get through, but I hope people do see the positives. Yeah, and it's important to emphasize uh, uh, those. I know you mentioned the uh, Montgomery family, and I know that they. Uh, I hope I hope they don't mind me saying this, but I think they've had some recent positive um, interactions with their new bishop or their uh, new stake president. So, um, so yeah, we need to. It's so important to celebrate those uh, movements forward and those positive steps in the right direction. And it has to go that way because I don't know that a religion or a church can really survive if they don't go through that maturation process and get out of that kind of siege mentality and way of thinking about ourselves and the in the rest of the world. I, I don't know that you're able to to grow um, and and survive if unless you are able to kind of move forward and grow grow out of that uh, a little bit. So um, yeah, I'm I'm hopeful. You know, I mean, you're a great example of this, and you mentioned some others. So I I hope I hope there's more examples like that. I have hope that uh, 
you know, one day um, I'll get, get my temple recommend back. We'll see what happens, but uh, I'm hopeful. Great. I appreciate that. On a lighter note, gospel doctrine, is that the, the, the adult class you're teaching? Wow, that's that's pretty impressive. That's that's my number one desired calling. So I'm always telling my bishop, I'm always kind of uh, elbowing him into the ribs and and telling him that whenever he you know he wants to call me as the gospel doctrine teacher, that's where I want to be. Well, that's so. kind of what I did too, and um, somehow it it uh, it happened, you know, for me. And and like I said, uh, you know, I kind of backed off from taking a calling after my temp- temple recommend was uh, denied for renewal. And it's good to be, it's good to be, uh, to have a calling again. And it feels good. And, uh, so far the class has been, um, really great. And, uh, hopefully that continues. And of course, you know, I, I wanted to do that as a good faith effort to hopefully, um, continue the communication and dialogue with my bishop. And I, I hope that things change. Right. Yeah. Speaking for myself and, and I think speaking for, for hundreds, if not thousands of others, uh, I look up to you, Kevin, and appreciate you and, and absolutely consider you a friend and, and wish you the best and uh, appreciate you being on Mormon Discussion today. Thanks, Bill. It was really great to be on your podcast. It's great to, to really share my story. And I just uh, want to say thank you to all your listeners and keep up the great work. I love the work that you do and uh, want continued success for you and your family in the podcast. Back at you, my brother. Thank you so much. Thank you, Bill. Choose.